Welcome to the Western Vowel Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only, and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Deepening Compassion in Times of Uncertainty, Groundlessness, and Fear. The talk was given by Nahama Greenwald on May 30th, 2020, in Prescott, Arizona. Nahama is a physical therapist, musician, writer, and one of the editors of Sahaja Magazine on Western Bell Practice. She was a member of the blues band, Shri which performed Western Bell music, touring Europe with them in the summers for 17 years. Nahama Greenwald. Okay. Welcome, everybody, to the new format of the Saturday Night Talk series online. And my name is Nahama Greenwald, and I will be giving the talk tonight. I will begin by speaking for a while, and then um, we'll open it up. What is utterly unnerving and what is utterly tender coexists within us side by side. So we have the the tenderness of compassion and the uncertainty, groundlessness, and fear, which is not just unnerving to us, but to the entire world. And we're experiencing this on a global level. And there's a lot that can be said about this, but I want to focus on um, what would be useful in terms of our practice. Because it's one thing to just know what's going on. We all see what's going on. But then the question is always, what do we do with it? How do we deepen our own practice? How do we delve more deeply into these principles of reality, these truths that are beyond the reach of time, and get a deeper glimpse into both the nature of illusion and the nature of reality? We have an opportunity. Those of us that walk the path that are practitioners have an opportunity for this right now, and it's actually a huge opportunity. My teacher, Lee Lazowick, used to say that we want to look at the world from the perspective of the work, which basically means that we want to look at everything that goes on in the world, in our lives, from the perspective of practice versus the other way around. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at things from the context of practice. As practitioners, We have the opportunity to make use of everything that arises for us, whether it's the simplest detail in our daily lives or something that is as global and overwhelming as the pandemic. And this idea of deepening compassion, I think, is related to the deepening of practice because as we work, with the mind as we work to deepen our own practice, with clarity, with honesty, 
with sincerity, with effort, then I think we are sowing the seeds for deepening our compassion for others. And there's so much that's going on right now. Now, we could talk about that for hours. There's grief. There's uh, profound uh, loneliness and a sense of loss. Many people are experiencing loneliness um, to a great degree. And there is, um, there's a sense of loss. There's uh, lots and lots of suffering. There is pain. There's physical pain. There's death. There are, there's anxiety. There is fear. All of it. And what we want to do is we want to open our eyes and just see it. We don't want to necessarily become obsessed with it or we don't want to turn away from us, from it. We just want to stay in place and we want to look, we want to see, and then we want to accept. Not just accepting what's going on for others, but accepting anything that might be going on for ourselves. And I think that that is actually the basis for compassion, is that we see and we accept. And we develop, on the path, we develop a big enough container. We build something in our own beings that we can hold everything that's going on, all ends of the spectrum of duality, everything that arises grief and joy, dark and light, that we have a container, we have a presence of being that's strong enough that we can hold it all. And we want that container to not just be strong, but to be resilient and to be flexible. So we see, we acknowledge, and we accept what's going on. So one of the things that there is an opportunity for us to delve more deeply into is working with the mind. There is a lot there right now because the mind, I don't think you can be on any spiritual path, no matter what it is. It doesn't have to be Hinduism or Buddhism, but in any spiritual path, it is necessary and good to work with one's mind. We always want to be working with what our mind does with everything, the way our mind clings, the way our mind grasps. That's what the mind wants to do. It wants to cling. It wants to grasp. It wants to identify with and solidify everything in the phenomenal world. We just hang on for dear life. And there is a lot here right now for us to observe around what's going on um, in our times right now with this, uh, with this virus, I think. Now, it's always a good time to work with the mind. It's not like this is the only time. But again, we're talking about principles of reality that are magnified right now, truths that are magnified, opportunities for us to take a deeper dive into what is real and what is illusion. So a good place to start is, I think, with the mind. My teacher, Lee, defined the mind as the quality or characteristic of being that actually creates and sustains that illusion of identification. So not only does the mind create identification, but it sustains that. 
The mind wants to make everything permanent, solid, fixed. But we know that even if we forget and we go to sleep about it, that the nature of reality is, in fact, insubstantial and it's empty. So all we have to do is look at our reference points for what's normal and look at the way those reference points are being undermined right now. I mean, that's what happens. Anytime we have a reference point that's fixed, that's solid, that we consider to be permanent and everlasting, everlasting reality is going to come around and it's going to undermine that. And there's a lot of undermining going on right now. And again, this is a fantastic opportunity to look at what we do with the mind. It's very hard to rest in groundlessness. It's very hard to rest in not knowing. And in fact, that is actually what we are called to do always. We're always called to do that. But again, with things being magnified, there is a a really unique opportunity right now. The Tibetan Buddhists have a term that they use for the transition of consciousness from death to rebirth. And that is called a bardo. Some of you may be familiar with that word. So the definition of a bardo is an intermediate transitional or liminal state between death and rebirth. But all we have to do is look at our lives and see that there are bardo states that are occurring all the time. Some bardo states last for years, some last for months, some last for a day, and some actually last for the smallest increment of time, like a nanosecond. So for example, let's say we've been healthy for most of our lives, and then we suddenly are going through a healing crisis, and we have to, we have to navigate through that, that transition from health to dealing with the healing crisis is a bardo state, it's transition. We can actually look at nature and see that dusk is a transitional time. Dawn is a transitional time. Let's say we raised a family, we had kids, we had a family unit, our kids go away, we're left without the kids, they don't live at home anymore, And there's the emptiness scenario. That's a bardo state too, from having the security of a family unit to one of, um, from to a different state. These are all transitions. Watching our bodies age, our bodies are always in transition from the aging process. We can look at the gap between thoughts. So there is a gap between one thought and another. And the gap between thoughts is actually a bardo state as well. It is a, it is a transitional liminal edge, a transitional liminal state. So we have a lot of examples of that. But the question is, or let's say we've, we've had a career our whole adult life. Let's say we have really identified with and uh, focused on a career And then we retire. That transition from working to retirement is also a transitional state. 
So the thing about transitional states is that there is a great deal of instability. And because there is instability, we are not standing on solid ground. There is a lot of of groundlessness. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of not knowing. We're not quite as sure-footed. And so what happens is that we wake up because when we're just going along and there isn't anything like this happening, we might tend to fall asleep. Our attention becomes kind of uh, blurred and not as sharp. And when we are in any kind of transitional bardo state, we wake up and what becomes available to us is a certain heightened degree of attention. And on the path, attention is a precious substance. We need attention for everything that we do. We need attention to create. We need attention to work on ourselves. We need attention to be able to understand, like, let's say, a principle of Dharma. We need our attention for many, many things. So what becomes available in a bardo or a liminal or transitional state is a degree of attention that we can really make use of. And I think the whole world is in a bardo state now. I think the whole entire uh, globe is dealing with the bardo state. That's how. That's one way that I would describe it. And so there, there's a real opportunity here to make use of that attention, that heightened degree of attention. And we really want to jump on that because it is available to us. And so we may turn that heightened attention towards the world. We may turn it towards service. We may turn it towards something that we can do to serve others during this time, or, and we can turn it towards ourselves. We can turn it within and we can make use of it by um, working with contemplation, with prayer. Perhaps we want to do some soul searching. I know that I am in a quite a process right now of soul searching with this heightened kind of attention that we have available to us right now. And we can turn it towards, let's say we want to redefine our aim. Maybe we want to examine something about ourselves or about a relationship or about some process that we're going through. Or maybe we want to take, maybe we want to make use of our attention to dive more deeply, as I was saying before, into looking at death, into looking at impermanence, into looking at how everything is in a state of flux and groundlessness. Here's a quote from Pema Chodron. Impermanence is a principle of harmony. When we don't struggle against it, we are in harmony with reality. Impermanence is a a 24-hour-a-day practice. So why would we struggle against impermanence? Well, for one reason, when we confront impermanence, when we take a look at it, we, our minds, have to look at death. We are confronted with death, and the mind resists that. Even if we are practicing with it, there's still some resistance 
that comes up from the mind, it's, it can be difficult to do. Um, so we are confronted with the resistance of the mind. But all we have to do is look at the natural world, which is what I do a lot. I look at the natural world and I see how the light changes all day long. There is a shifting and changing just of the light from early morning to afternoon to dusk to nighttime. The sun rises, the sun sets. If there's a moon, the moon rises, the moon sets. There's the changing of the seasons. It's all over. It's all over the natural world. Sometimes it's raining. Sometimes there's a blue sky. And again, all we have to do is look at our own bodies to see that we ourselves are always in flux. Looking at pictures of ourselves 20 years ago, oh my God. Wow, we don't always realize it when we see ourselves every single day. So if there is something that we can look at, we can take refuge in and we can look at the natural world and see that we too are just like the natural world where everything is in a state of flux and that impermanence is actually one of the principles of reality that I wanted to talk about tonight. It's a principle of harmony. And like Pema Children says, it's going on 24 hours a day. It's never not happening. And it's happening all the time. It's happening every single moment of our lives. And yet things are accelerated and magnified right now, as we all can see. Red Hawk, who is a, uh, a renowned poet, and he's also the writer of the books on self-observation, He was doing an interview recently that I was listening to, and there was something that he sang that I I really resonated with it. And one of the reasons I resonated with it is because it's a similar thought that I have had myself, which is that what's going on with this pandemic right now is actually a cry from the feminine with the capital F. It is an urgent plea. It is an urgent calling from the feminine, from the voice of the feminine, which is not going to be a speaking voice, but the feminine can speak in many different ways. And one of the ways it's speaking, I think, and what Red Hawk was saying is through this play, because there is, an, there is such a profound imbalance in our world with the dominance of the masculine and the banishing of the feminine. And it's so important. It is vitally and essentially important to restore balance and to call forth the feminine and the values of the feminine, which are not gender specific. It doesn't mean that women express feminine values and men don't. It's not like that like that at all. It comes through men and comes through women and also the valuing of women as well. So I just wanted to put that in because the feminine is related to tenderness and mercy and compassion and um, it's related to um, softness and 
many, many other things that, that we can say about the feminine. But there's a need, a great need for the world to begin to cherish the feminine again. And I think that one of the things that's going on with this pandemic is this plea from the feminine, the feminine, the divine feminine, the feminine in the highest sense to help us to realize that we need to bring back a sense of of balance to the world before the world is um, destroyed even more than it is. Most of you have probably heard of the Don Juan's um, concept of the assemblage point. I'm sure most of you have heard about that. And this idea that the assemblage point is that energetic point around which we constellate and configure reality so that we can navigate through life with a a certain kind of um, familiarity and with consistency. And the assemblage point is related to how we perceive reality and our tendency is to become fixed in the way that we perceive things. And we all have this. We all have an assemblage point. And I think, I I don't think that Don Juan says this, but I think that not only do individuals have assemblage point, but I think couples do and groups and uh, I don't know, maybe even the whole world, countries, um, maybe not quite in the same way. But that's, that's, that's not what Don Juan said. That's just, that's just my take on it. But if we're talking about transformation, then that assemblage point has to shift. So it's necessary for if we are interested in transformation, for that assemblage point to shift. And I want to read a quote from Don Juan from The Power of Silence. Any movement of the assemblage point means a movement away from excessive concern with the individual self. Shamans believe it is the position of the assemblage point which makes modern man a homicidal egotist, a being totally involved with the self-image. Having lost hope of ever returning to the source of everything, the average man seeks solace in his selfishness. Robert Svoboda always talks about how we are living in the age of Rahu and for those of you who don't know who Rahu is, Rahu is one of the nine grahas or nine planets and is depicted as a head with no body because Rahu is insatiable and Rahu can never get enough. Rahu always wants to consume and um, is run by insatiability and greed. And we are ruled, according to Robert Svoboda, we are actually ruled by Rahu in this day and age, which is not that hard to see. And when Don Juan talks about having lost hope of every returning to the source of everything, my understanding of that has to do with having that we have lost touch. I'm not talking about the people that are on this meeting necessarily, but if we look out into the world and, and the trending of the world as it is right now, 
that people have really lost touch with the great mystery, with the divine, with something that is beyond our individual egos. And people lead very materialistic, self-centered, self-focused lives. And so our assemblage points are tend to be fixed, but they can be shifted. And not only have we lost touch with the divine, but along with that, we've lost touch with beauty. We've lost touch with awe. We've lost touch with adoration and with wonder. And something has to be shifted. Something has to fall apart. Something from the old way has to disintegrate. Something of the old assemblage point has to shift for something else to emerge. And I hold as a possibility, I don't necessarily think that it's going to happen. It might happen in some small way, but I think it would be just absolutely fantastic to have a shifting of the assemblage point of this entire world. Because just like I was saying about the feminine and the banishing of the feminine and the great urgency for the feminine to uh, return to this world. I think also that it's very, very significant and important that we reconnect with, with beauty and with wonder because those in and of themselves are transformational. So I want to throw that in as a way of connecting that with what I was saying about the feminine and You know, you can ask, well, that's not about compassion, but it actually really is because the more that we're in touch with beauty and wonder and adoration and awe and the great mystery of all life and death, I think that that brings us into harmony with compassion as well. Okay, I want to talk about um, one other thing. I want to talk about death. And then I want to switch gears and take everything to a more personal level as a way of tying it into the themes tonight of um, compassion and impermanence and groundlessness and, and all of that that we have touched on this evening. So it's undeniable that we are experiencing a lot of groundlessness right now. And there is again, a really incredible opportunity to deepen our compassion by contemplating death. So contemplating death is a very, very powerful way to deepen our compassion. And this is something that I have been working with myself. It's really um, staggering to me to see that over 100,000 people have died. And again, People have died. People die every single day, every minute of every day. And yet, again, we're talking about things being magnified and how to work with that. So more people have died from this than the Vietnam War and 9-11 put together. That's pretty staggering to me. And mass graves are being dug around the world, not just in this country, not just in New York. Bodies have been piled up in uh, vehicles and trucks. And this is, there's a lot of death going on right now. And people who are dying, actually, like in a hospital, can't even sit with uh, 
their loved ones, their intimates right now. The nurses have to bring in a, an iPad to bring their loved ones to them as, as they are dying. So it's, it's very intense with the suffering around death right now. And um, I think about India and I think about what they have in India um, called, they're called cremation grounds. They're also called smashans. They're called charnel grounds. And it's, they're usually on the banks of a river. And it's where they bring bodies to cremate them on like a funeral pyre. And the bodies are burned and Brahmin priests are called in to uh, offer prayers and blessings for the departed soul and wishing them a good rebirth. And then the ashes of the dead person are sprinkled, poured into the river. That's why they're on the banks of the river. And Shiva is the deity that presides over the charnel grounds, over the smashans. And there are yogis who actually go to these smashans and sit in the midst of them and put themselves right in the way of death and impermanence. They use it to face their own deaths, and they actually sit and meditate for hours and hours and hours and hours. And I think that it's very, very important in a death-phobic culture, as Stephen Jenkinson calls it, it's very important to be working with death on a regular basis, maybe even on a daily basis, because whether we're headed there at this moment or we're headed there sometime in the near future, we're all going there. And I think that there's a lot that we can do in contemplating death, not just to deepen that tenderness of compassion for all beings that suffer and die, but also to be able to learn how to let go for the moment of death. I think practicing with death can be a very, very strong way to do that. And we don't do a lot of that in this culture. It's not like India where everything is out in the open. Like the charnel ground isn't some isn't in some uh, hidden away secret place. It's just right there out in the open, like everything else is in India. But in this culture, death is just swept under the rug. It's um, there are many many sophisticated distractions that we all have to not think about it. And I'm not talking about you know just walk around being morbid with your head hanging down. It's actually a very enlivening practice, and it can enliven us, not just for the moment of death, but for our lives as they are right now. And perhaps we can talk more about that, or somebody might have an experience or a comment about that. Um, But I I did want to mention that because we too can imagine, as we see what's going on with this virus, we can imagine that we are sitting in these cremation grounds, we can imagine that we are sitting and we are facing the inevitability of impermanence and death. I want to read a quote from Joan Halifax, who's a Zen Roshi, a Zen priest. She was talking about the charnel grounds and she was speaking about it metaphorically. So I'm talking about it as a literal place in India where yogis go to um, meditate on um, impermanence. But I really, I wanted to include this quote because I really liked 
the way that she speaks about it. So what she says is the charnel ground is a metaphor for any environment where suffering is present. A Japanese hospital, a schoolroom, a violent home, a mental institution, a refugee camp. Really, any place that is tainted by fear, depression, anger, despair, disrespect, or deceit is a charnel ground, including our own minds. A charnel ground is not only a place of desolation, it's a place of boundless possibility. So I want to emphasize that not only are we talking about these kind of sobering principles of life, of reality, but there's something enlivening about it because side by side with that, there is always the possibility of transformation. And maybe it's too, um, too lofty to think about it in terms of the whole globe, but we can certainly apply it to our own lives and to our, our own practice. We are rubbing up against transformation, the shifting of one's assemblage point, the possibility of using the available um, heightened degree of attention to turn it towards deep contemplation of self, of the divine, of prayer. Um, All of that can be ways to interface with the possibility of transformation. So now I'm going to get a little bit more personal, not to go on and on about myself, that's not the purpose, but to um, speak about uh, what I've been going through this year as a way to um, support what I'm trying to, to say tonight. Because I think sometimes when we are vulnerable and we're willing to speak about um, our own experience, that it can, it can deepen something for everybody. And that is my wish, of course. So this year for me has been, um, without a shadow of a doubt, um, filled with incredible amount of loss, of breakdown, um, talking about having to work with my identifications even before the virus hit early in the year. The, um, I'm a physical therapist, and the office that I've been practicing out of for 23 years, the lease that I had suddenly got terminated by my landlord without any notice. Well, he gave me 30 days, but no explanation and no willingness to engage in a discussion about it. It completely was a shock to me. It took me by surprise because I thought I would actually be there until I retired. And there was no sense of closure because um, he didn't want to discuss it with me. And the whole thing was a, a mystery. I didn't really understand. But I had to quickly leave that office. And talking about identifications, I was very identified with that as a place of business. It was where I grew my practice, my physical therapy practice. And my identification with that was hugely dismantled. And then a week later, my um, partner of many years went into the ER with a uh, knee infection and ended up in the hospital for five weeks with a very, very serious infection. 
and multiple surgeries. Um, and it was kind, it was pretty touch and go at the same time that I was trying to find another office. And um, talking about identification <laughs> with a partner, talking about identifications being dismantled and working with the mind, I found that my mind was just doing everything I said in the very beginning. It was wanting to cling, to resist, to think of things as being everything that I loved and wanted to stay in place as being permanent and fixed and solid. And everything was just slipping away. And then a week after that, the virus hit. And I lost um, a good deal of my business and my income. And this all happened in a period of about three or four weeks. So you can say that I was reeling and I was left in a state of groundlessness. And talking about having um, my assemblage point shifted and my attention being heightened, I love to walk outside. And one day I was walking, taking a walk, because that was, that was something that really saved me was just being able to walk outside. I didn't even care what the weather was. I just wanted to, to, to walk outside. And I've been walking for many, many years. And I was walking on the ground and I was so aware of how solid the ground was and that it was holding me up. The ground was actually supporting me. And I was so grateful to not have the ground collapse when literally things in my life were collapsing and I was so disoriented. I was disoriented quite a bit. And so to have the reference point of just having the earth under my feet was just absolutely sublime. And it sounds like I've, I've walked for years, millions of steps and never thought about that very much. Maybe I had a fleeting thought, but this was like deep gratitude for it. So that's what can happen when we are in these states of groundlessness. Other things can arise for us that don't arise when we are fixated on what we're identified with, um, when we feel like things are always going to be a certain way and they're going to be solid and permanent and fixed. Here's another quote from Pema Chodron. When things are shaky and nothing is working, we might realize we are on the verge of something. We might realize that this is a very vulnerable and tender place. There is definitely something tender and throbbing about groundlessness. And I can say, I can testify as if I were in church, I can testify and say, yeah, <laughs> that it is true. I can verify that there is something tender and throbbing about groundlessness. The title of the talk is Deepening Compassion in Times of Groundlessness, Uncertainty, and Fear. It's this coexisting of what is utterly unnerving and what is utterly tender side by side within us. It is the tender and the throbbing qualities of groundlessness that both exist within us. And so what happened is that I was feeling very alone. And I wasn't psychologically alone because I had wonderful friends and support and everything else. But 
it was a, a, a realization, and it's a realization that I've had before, that we all walk the path alone. Even if we have um, the most wonderful spouse or partner or incredibly uh, loyal, wise friends, or if we have the help of a guru or a teacher, all of that is just incredibly important. And yet, it's my experience that we walk the path alone. So I was aware of that as I was dealing with the many, many things I had to deal with as, as things were falling apart for me. And what that created, that sense of feeling alone, was that I had a real encounter with emptiness. We read about in the Dharma, we read about emptiness. Reality is emptiness, insubstantiality, all of that. But then when it comes to viscerally encountering it with our bones, with our bodies, when we're right there interfacing with it, that is a whole different experience. And I was really um, encountering emptiness. And I have to say that there were times when I would wake up in the middle of the night terrified. But again, along with that terror, I was afraid. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of terror. And yet, at the same time, what I also found is that there was this kind of freedom. There's freedom in having nothing to hold on to. There's freedom in having your identifications dismantled. There's freedom of experiencing a state of uh, groundlessness. There's a certain kind of freedom along with the terror and the fear. I also discovered and felt, and I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience here, I also felt a sense of freedom and a lot of space. And I was very aware also that all people, all suffering people in the world, anybody that was suffering with anything, suffering from this virus, suffering from anything similar to what I was going through, all people in pain that were experiencing loss, that were having the ground um, you know, fall apart under their feet, in that place of inner space, along with the terror and along with the freedom, with all of that mixed in together, they all became my companions. All of them became my companions. And I felt so connected. I felt such a kinship with other beings. And it was a whole different reference point for compassion. It came out of emptiness. I think emptiness and compassion are side by side. They go together. I think that when we experience emptiness, when we experience space, that there is just more room for others. We're not in that definition of what, when Don Juan talks about the assemblage point being fixed around our perception of reality, we're, we're revolving around, we're spinning around, we're constellating around something else. And so there was a kind of compassion that came out of not so much, oh, somebody is suffering from the virus right now. It was much more, I don't know, it was more, it was real, but it was also a little bit more intangible. 
wasn't like related to a specific person. It was just something that was occurring for me. And I was reading a definition for emptiness or another word for it is shunyata. I was reading a definition. I think it was a translation from Japanese. And the definition was like the sky or of the sky. So the sky is, what is the sky? The sky is vast, expansive. It allows anything to go across it. It doesn't reject anything. It allows anything to come across it, whether it's a rainbow or a flock of birds or um, clouds, a bank of clouds or a dome of stars or the journey of the sun, of the moon, whatever it is, the sky allows it. And that was really, I really liked that definition because that's what it felt like to me that this emptiness, this encounter with emptiness and spaciousness was very much like the sky. It allowed for anything to go across it, whatever it is, whether it's not being able to identify with anything solid, um, whether it was a certain kind of loss, um, a certain kind of definition, just allow it to go across. And there were particular moments where I was actually able to understand what that was. And at the same time, what I discovered in myself, along with all of this, is a much greater capacity to be able to let go. The mind wants to cling. It's like, no, no, don't take this away. No, keep this the way it is. I don't want this to change. And then we look out at the natural world. We look at death. We look at all of it. And we say, it's always changing all the time. And I, I realized from my own suffering that I had the capacity, I was able to let go of anything that I needed to let go of, that I did not need to cling to the things I thought I had to, otherwise I was going to die. I couldn't handle it. It's like, oh, it's possible. It's, it's being like the sky, whatever comes across the sky. And I think that that's valuable for, for all of us because that's what we need to do all the time. We always need to be letting go. We need to be able to forgive. We need to be able to let go of things that happen to us so we're not just building and accumulating more and more and more. We want that vastness of the sky within us. We want that vastness of, of space, of being expansive. It doesn't mean we're not going to be contracted or that we're not going to have times when we're just back in our old habits, but there is this possibility that we can let go throughout our lives. So when we are on our deathbed, that we can let go into death because that's what we're practicing for. We're practicing for that moment and we're practicing in a sense to, to die in each moment. It could just be dying to the self-centered self, like Don Juan was talking about, and being able to show up in a different way or to be present for someone that we don't necessarily like. So I can go on and on about this, um, but I hope that, to me, this was a a very profound time uh, because 
I was so disoriented by what was going on. I was so overwhelmed. And yet there was all of of these other experiences that were happening that were really um, incredibly valuable and that I am still trying to digest. Okay, now I want to hear from some of you. I think I've, I've talked for now 53 minutes. So what would somebody else like to say? <laughs> it's a really very profound, profound topic that you're dealing with. And I'm so grateful for the reminding factors and for the witness of your life and how you've been dealing with your great losses and identifications over the last number of months. Um, I just wanted to share that I had received a beautiful quote uh, from Red Hawk reminding us of a teaching of, um, of Gurdjieff that was um, given uh, in, a, in the book called Teachings of Gurdjieff by C.S. Knott. And he says, um, to try to put yourself in the position of others, they have the same significance as you. They suffer as you do, and like you, they will die. Only if you always try to sense this significance until it becomes a habit, Whenever your attention rests on anyone, only then will you be able to assimilate the good part of air and have a real eye. Every person has wants and desires which are dear to them and which they will lose at death. From realizing the significance of your neighbor when your attention rests on them, that they will die, pity for them and compassion towards them will arise in you. And finally, you will love them. End of quote. So every time you come into relationship with someone, if you could have that habit of recognizing that just like you, they will die, uh, it really transforms the quality of your relationship with in every, in every moment. Thank you for bringing that. Thank you. Okay. Who else? It does help all of us when we hear another person's story for us to have support systems like this to be able to help ourselves move into a new state of of being and awareness and acceptance. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, I uh, am reticent to follow to follow that. Um, because there's such there's such a sense of uh, there's such a chamber here of compassion and, and tenderness. Um, you know, here we are, all of us, incredibly privileged individuals, sitting here discussing things that absolutely need to be the defining elements in our life. The anger and the fear that we see and feel uh, in the country is strong. At the same time, I know from my own experience in firefighting communities and working with communities at risk that there's so much uh, rising of the spirit that comes at times like these. I feel like I hold opposites within me and that they're going to make me burst. (laughs) How can I hold what we're talking about, this tenderness, this compassion, and at the same time, honor the outrage? Mm-hmm. I ask that as a question. It's a good question because 
in the very beginning, I was saying that as practitioners, we are building a container to be able to hold all of it. We witness it, we see it, and we allow it to be. And I, I think it takes a, a lifetime where, where we can hold just across the spectrum these opposites in duality, like light and dark, for example, tenderness and outrage. There's a place for all of it. You know, it's not like we get so tangled up in rejection, acceptance, um, what we like, what we don't like, because really, just like I was saying with my own personal experience, we have, there is plenty of space for us to be able to hold it all and to sit with what comes up around it. Marianne Woodman, the um, Jungian psychologist, used to say, it's holding the tension of the opposites. And I don't want to answer your question because the, the, the power is in the question itself. And then how we, how we work with that is, is the work itself. I feel what you're saying, and I, I really empathize with it. And it's a great thing to, um, to contemplate, you know, but allow all of it to be there. Don't just say, well, I have to be compassionate, and that means I can't be outraged. You know what I mean? Don't reject one for something else. Everything has a different quality, has a different nuance. Somehow what we have, what I needed to do is to hold that just feeling everything was somehow a way of connecting and giving back. There was something about that for me. And, you know, many times I felt like I went into the Bardos. (laughs) That's all I can say. And the more that I, I kind of could open myself to that, the more I could embrace that. But that and I, I decided at some point that that's how the world is going to be. It's like something has shifted in the world. And it's a great opportunity to acknowledge that. Instead of thinking, well, we'll all go back to the same thing. And, you know, it feels like this is a great time to just contemplate impermanence. Mm -hmm. We're not all going to be on the front lines being first responders. We're not all going to be doing that. And yes, those people that are doing that are providing an incredible service, but like I was saying, that heightened degree of attention that's available during times of instability, it's just as powerful to turn that towards others as to turn it towards one towards one's inner life. It's the same, it's still attention, and it's still, um, there's great value in that. So I think it's a, um, a very, um, it's very important not to underestimate that. Anybody else? I had the opportunity over this past weekend to uh, listen to some talks 
from a wonderful uh, women's conference. The leader was uh, Sultra Malion, who's a Buddhist teacher acknowledged by the Karmapa. Anyway, one of the things among many things, wonderful things that she said, which has left me with the koan, she said, meditation is activism. So I'm not going to try to explain that or take it any further, but just offer it to, to myself and, and us and see that if we can just be with that as a question, because for many of us, we have the possibility of what we have. She says, meditation is activism. That's great. Fantastic.